Well, uh, good evening. Thanks for coming out to Epiphany tonight. Let's uh, pause for a word of prayer as we get ready to hear from, from God's Word. Father, we thank you for gathering us in the midst of heat, whether it be winter, spring, summer, or fall, you are faithful through all seasons to us. You are constantly calling us to draw near. Tonight, I don't know what the people you've brought here are walking in with, but you do. You know the struggles and sins that weigh us down. You know the insecurities and the shame, the guilt. I ask right now, Lord Jesus, that you would bring freedom to us. And in doing so, bring us joy in serving others to share that message of freedom. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Well, again, good to have you here tonight. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. You know, normally when we gather, I do wear a sport coat. I actually have one, but after putting it on about 20 minutes before the service, I was like, no one wants to see that guy sweating like crazy up there. So forgive me. I'm dressed down a little bit tonight, but I'm comfortable. So uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, it reads like this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to them, well, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this. And you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do End of reading. Uh, well, believe it or not, uh, this pastor uh, got in a lot of fights growing up. 
It is, uh, it is true, and I wasn't good at doing it. I lost the vast majority of the time. I got beat up a lot growing up, not necessarily because I was bullied. I had a big mouth and wasn't afraid to use it, but I didn't know how to back up the mouth at all. And so somebody would finally get tired of my mouth and, you know, smack it. And uh, I didn't really, I wasn't really good at, uh, at fighting them back. Uh, and the most memorable time that I got beat up happened when I was in ninth grade. Me and my two friends, Jonas and Noel, had been dropped off. We were freshmen in high school. We couldn't drive. We'd been dropped off uh, at the movie theater to go see A Few Good Men. So that shows you how long ago this was. And uh, there was a little bit of time before the movie, and so we decided that we'd uh, walk across the street to a Del Taco. That's a California uh, fast food chain that is delicious, in my humble opinion. Uh, and so we were going to walk across the street to Del Taco, and get a couple tacos, and then we'd go to the movie. And as soon as we crossed the street, uh, immediately we were surrounded by nine much larger men than we were in a half circle. So apparently they had watched us from across the street, and by the time we got there, they were surrounding us. One of them came up to my friend Noel. Noel was trying to be kind of the ambassador of the group, and Noel said, is there anything I can do for you? And the guy said, do you know Anthony? And Noel's like, no, I don't know Anthony, man. And before he can even finish his answer, the guy just pops up. And then everybody just rushes us. I got three guys on me. I get down in the fetal position because, like, what am I going to do to three guys? I'm just going to cover myself. And so they're kicking me and punching me, and they punch me in the head. They're kicking my whatever organs are on my, you know, they can get to. Uh, they lift up my friend Jonas, and literally, they, I see out of the corner of my eye, I'm on the floor, and I see them lift him up like this and just go, boom, and just slam him on his back. And my friend Jonas was so flexible that literally it was like watching somebody made of rubber. He just went boom and just ran as fast as he could. My friend Noel got the worst of it. He had a couple black eyes. He was bleeding. I was bleeding from my lip uh, and in lots of soreness and, uh, and pain at the end of it. And here's what I remember seeing very vividly as it happened. Because when you go through something like this, it, it's sort of things getting, you know, going slow motion. I remember looking in the restaurant and seeing there had to be 20 people there and they're watching us get beat up. So they're just sitting at their table, just like eating their taco, watching us get pummeled. There's a guy literally on the payphone three feet from me. This is back when payphones existed. He's on the payphone and he's just looking like still talking on the phone. And he's looking at us getting beat. And long story short, the thing that stuck out to me most about that evening was that there were no good Samaritans among the group gathered at the restaurant. Where were the good Samaritans? Now, there are, uh, there are some stories in the Bible that have spread much further than the four walls of the church. Stories that if you asked the outsider to uh, the church, if they knew it, uh, they probably would be able to give you a brief synopsis. I mean, I think of the Red Sea parting that's gotten some cultural capital. And of course, the story of the prodigal son. There's Bible verses like, you shall not judge, that seems to be known by everybody. And then there's... Stories like tonight, the Good Samaritan. 
Today's story is indeed like that. Its impact is so broad that even still today, whenever someone helps out a stranger, he or she is referred to in the broader culture, secular culture, as a good Samaritan. And so as a result of this parable's fame, it can be a little difficult for a preacher to preach it, honestly, because what can I tell you that you don't know, that you haven't heard before? Nevertheless, it is scripture, and I think if we do dig a little deeper today, maybe, maybe you'll get a bit of a new perspective on this famous story, the Good Samaritan. So with that being said, let's give a little background. It all starts off with a lawyer, one skilled in the interpretation of the law of God. This is a Jewish theologian, a scholar is who we're talking about here, somebody that spent hours and hours and hours every day copying down the law of God, experts in it, memorizing it constantly. That guy stands up to test Jesus. Say, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? From the beginning, Luke tells us his true motives. He is a smart, learned man who intends to stump Jesus. That's the point here. He is not really interested in learning a real answer. As good as a Bible scholar he might be, he thinks he already knows it anyway. He thinks he is in the driver's seat here, and Jesus is the one under his control. But of course, he doesn't know who he's really dealing with. And so Jesus responds in good rabbinical fashion. This is, this is Rabbiism 101 with a question. Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, you tell me the answer, dear friend. And I suppose at this point it would be uh, fair for the lawyer to simply say, I asked you first. You tell me. But he doesn't say that. He, he does. He takes the bait and he gives a picture-perfect answer of what the law is all about. You shall love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Ding, ding. The lawyer spot on sums up the two greatest commandments in all of Scripture. So Jesus says, all right, cool. Just do that, and you're good to go. Since the man loved the law so much, and after all, wanted to know what, quote, to do to inherit eternal life, that's his phrasing. Jesus tells him, you want to know what to do, that's, how, that, that's it. But those words, as easy as they are to quote on paper, are not as easy to test yourself by. Initially, this lawyer confidently comes to Jesus to test him, but now he is the one being tested. Something inside of him, as he quotes these commands, must not be sitting well. Now, one might think it might be the first command. I mean, that seems pretty hefty. Love God not with just some of your mind, some of your strength, but like all. In the Greek, the word is all. Like, it's all the things. Never without a moment are you supposed to do anything but love God with every part of your being? But he seems to think he's got that one covered. It's the second one that gives him a little trouble in his conscience. And so he says, can you define the neighbor for me? There's a good reason to ask this question in Jewish life at the time. 
as we see from the rest of Jesus' ministry, that the word neighbor had been redefined by the religious leaders of the day. And it was redefined, frankly, to be more compatible with who you wanted to actually show love to. So to fulfill this command of loving neighbor, some people were excluded from the title, neighbor. For starters, all non-Jews. All non-Jews. Also, Jew or not, if they were perceived to be your enemy, no longer neighbor. Tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, not neighbors in the Judaism of the day. But perhaps this lawyer has heard of some of Jesus' teachings on the issue. Remember, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, near the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, that he says this, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Or maybe even more than his teaching, this lawyer has heard of how Jesus would touch and heal lepers, how he would dine with tax collectors in their homes of all places. Good grief. Or how he would show grace to prostitutes, to the unclean, to the ungodly. Clearly, this man Jesus had a very different definition of neighbor than the rest of the community did. And the fact is, the definition of neighbor isn't sitting well with him at all. He needs to find a loophole. So then, here's the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This road would have been very familiar to the lawyer and the crowd Jesus was teaching at the time. It was a common traveling road to get from one town to the other. It was about 17 miles long and descended sharply from about 2,500 feet above sea level to about 770 feet below. So... It's a good 3,000-foot drop. It's known by, the, uh, known by some at the time as the, quote, bloody path. That's what it's actually referred to as. Scholar David Wenham sets the scene. He says, the description of the man being set upon, brutally beaten, and left half dead would have made uncomfortable sense at the time. It was what everyone feared about the road in Jesus' day, and indeed what pilgrims and others have often feared since. Wenham notes, for example, in the 12th century, the Crusader Order of Templars was founded to protect pilgrims traveling on that very road. And in the 19th century, even pilgrims were given an escort of Turkish soldiers for the journey. So before going any further, it's important for us to stop and just picture the scene, because that's what Jesus wants us to do when he tells us a parable. There is a man, stripped, so at least, at least half naked. Beaten so severely that he is left for dead. The people who have beaten him assume he will die if he isn't already dead. He is as helpless as a human being can be. There is no way he has of saving himself. None. No possibility. So, you can imagine the absolute burst of hope the beaten man had as out of the corner of his squinting, beaten eyeballs, he can see a man approaching his way. And it's not just any ordinary man, but a man in religious garb. A good, 
godly man coming from the temple. Maybe my salvation lies with him. It's a priest. Perhaps he could take him back to the temple where there could be ample resources to, to heal, for sure. But that's, of course, not what happened. Now, by chance, the priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, please notice the priest saw the man, which means he noticed the man laying there in his own pool of blood, and yet, like, I mean, the, the text alludes to the fact that, like, he just goes to the other side of the road and then moves on. But thankfully, all is not lost. So likewise, a Levite came to the place and saw him. This would have been another guy that looked the part. Maybe the, the man thought, okay, not every religious man is good, but surely this assistant pastor here will stop to help me. The Levite, after all, arranged the singing in the temple for the services. Surely he had just sung a few songs extolling God's desire for us to love our neighbors. Surely the words of the scriptures and the sound of these songs would echo in his mind as he saw the man. But again, same result. Passed by on the other side of the road. Now, let me stop here. Upon reading this portion of the story, it is all too common for us to make these men into villains and hypocrites and, frankly, caricatures. To some extent, they are villains and hypocrites, but don't allow yourself to disassociate from them too quickly here. Remember, I mean, this is a rough road they're on. Remember, they are doing important work and are very busy. They've got a lot of things to do. Who knows what they're on their way to do? Helmut Thielicke, a German pastor, pictures the priest wrestling with whether to help the man or not. He is just about to when at that last moment there occurred to the priest a, a saving thought which at one stroke released him from this painful and hazardous obligation and dispersed these self-reproaches of cowardice. And the saving thought was this question. Who is my neighbor? This guy who I don't know at all? This guy who may well be a rascal or even a drunk who probably ran his head into a tree? My family has to come first. If, if it were only myself, I would sacrifice my life for him, but I have to maintain my family, my vocation, and therefore my real neighbor. Matter of fact, it wouldn't even be obedience, but sinful. If I would allow myself to be done in by these robbers, too. Bad enough that one person should be assaulted. Nobody would be served if this gang were to beat and maim not only one, but two persons. Besides, I have all the offering money from the temple in my pocket. What if they beat me and took that? Tioga concludes, he thought of a hundred other reasons why this man could not possibly be his neighbor. 
Reasons always present themselves, he says, when we want to duck something. Isn't that true? Even the worst blockhead suddenly becomes as sharp-witted as a math professor when it comes to finding reason for getting out of doing something. And then this cutting line, the road to hell is not, or is paved not merely with good intentions, but with good reasons. And if I'm honest with you, it is all too often the same for me. It's not, it's not that we're these monsters that don't care. But it is that we are fallen human beings. And that means that at bottom, most of the time, our primary thought, our primary motive most of our day is trying to please ourselves and those closest to us. But the result of our loveless action is that our neighbor ends up still laying there, beaten, bloodied, naked, and left for dead on the side of the road. But a Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was. Oh, great. A Samaritan. The beaten man must have thought, Surely the Jewish man in the audience that Jesus is speaking to who are overhearing this would have thought the same thing upon hearing the title. I mean, the Samaritans, I'm not telling any tales out of school here, you know this, the Samaritans and the Jews of Judea had become mortal enemies just a little over 100 years earlier. The Jews had made war on their home and destroyed their temple. In AD 6, just a little over 20 years before this, some Samaritans broke into the Jewish temple and spread bones all over it so as to desecrate it and make it unclean. It is not an understatement to say that the Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated each other's guts. It is, in fact, the modern-day equivalent of a terrorist stopping to help you, the Christian, on the side of the road. It is not far-fetched to imagine the beating man being filled with even more terror, that maybe, just maybe, the Samaritan is coming to finish off the job. And so it is with shock and awe, and it always has been received this way, that Jesus says, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, I love that word. I love that word in Greek. I love it. Because the word for compassion there is the same word used to describe the father's feeling for his lost son in the story of the prodigal son. It is a deep-seated, overwhelming sense of identification, empathy with the injured person. No longer does this man see himself as a Samaritan and the injured man a Jew. The Samaritan now only sees another human being just like him, laying there naked, beaten, and dying, and his compassion propels him into action. And through this, the Samaritan ends up becoming a type of Jesus Christ to this man. What do I mean? Well, first of all, it says he went to him. Oh, how easy it would have been to be the priest and the Levite and do what they did before, not do any more harm, but rather quietly pass by and let happen what would happen. But that's not the way it works when you feel compassion for someone. So too, our Lord did not stay in the comfort, in the comfortable confines of heaven, waiting for us to pass away. But 
makes the initiative, takes the initiative, and comes to us where we're at. He binds up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The Samaritan uses his own medicine for his journey to help the man. Wine to disinfect and oil as a salve for the wounds. So too, Jesus did not merely come to where we were at, but brought healing to our wounds through his perfect life. The Samaritan sets him on his own animal. The man carries the stranger, this enemy, on his own beast, choosing to walk alongside of him instead. Indeed, Christ carries us too, like a shepherd carries an injured lamb back to the flock, but he is not done. It says he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The generosity here is overwhelming in the care for this stranger. The Samaritan gives the innkeeper enough money to cover weeks of expenses for the man to recover and says on top of it, whatever more you spend, however more it is, it doesn't matter, I will cover every bit to heal him. Is not this what Christ has done for us? Paying the price in full for us to be completely healed and restored, resurrected. You see, the Samaritan is not merely a picture us, picture to us today of a good neighbor. You know, the way this is often told is that it's a it's a morality tale for you and I to see an example in and then follow. But no, this is more important than that. The Samaritan ultimately is a picture of the one truly good neighbor who has ever walked the face of this earth. The one truly perfect neighbor who has ever walked the face of this earth. Jesus is showing the lawyer he's speaking to that the true neighbor will do anything to help anyone at any time. And there's only one who's done it, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So Jesus comes full circle. Coming back to the man's question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The answer's obvious. I mean, it's obvious. The lawyer knows it. Jesus knows it. The crowd knows it. And so he says, he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He just mumbles the one, the one who showed mercy. He knows who his real neighbor is now. It's anyone who you can show compassion to. It's anyone who can give compassion. The real neighbor is you and I together all of them out there. I was in downtown LA, actually not downtown LA, I was in a worse part. I was in Inglewood, California at a Laker playoff game back when the Lakers did that, like went to the playoffs. I'm hopeful this year, but we'll see. I was at a Laker playoff game the day that the L.A. riots started. We went into the game and the riots had not started yet. We walked out of the game 
And there was fires everywhere. There were sirens everywhere. It was absolute craziness. We didn't, we, I mean, this is back, you know, you didn't have cell phones then, so you couldn't, like, constantly keep up on what was going on. So we were oblivious. We were just like, yay, the Lakers won. And then came out and was like, oh, no, it's the apocalypse. You know? <laughs> um, and so we quickly rushed to our car. I had a bunch of friends with me. It was for, we were celebrating my birthday. My dad was driving, and my dad said, I want you guys to get your heads down, lay down on the floor, because you just didn't know. We're driving through, and I'm seeing out of the, just of the window, everything's burning, everything. There's just burning buildings everywhere, and there's, there's people running all over the streets with, you know, they're looting and doing all sorts of things. And that was basically the coverage you saw on TV, was just the worst of the worst, right? I mean, that's what you saw. And, and one of the worst incidents that happened that day was with a man named Reginald Denny. I don't know if, if you remember that man, but Reginald Denny had been, he had been driving a semi-truck and he was, he stopped and a group of people came up to his truck, opened the door, dragged him out and beat him nearly to death. Took him many, many, many weeks to recover. What you didn't see in the footage of Reginald Denny was Reverend Benny Newton. Newton himself had been an ex-con who God had saved in prison. Now God was using him to run an inner city ministry. On the day the riots started, he turned on the television and he saw these gang members beating a man on the corner of Florence and Normandy, not far from where he was at. And so Newton rushed to the scene. But when he arrived, Denny was gone. Instead, the gang was still there, and they were pummeling another guy, Fidel Lopez, a self-employed construction worker. He, too, had been ripped from his truck, robbed of nearly $2,000. Someone busted his forehead open with a car stereo. Another rider tried to slice his ear off. They took off his pants and underwear after he blacked out. Then they spray-painted his body. Newton who was considerably older, jumped right into the mess and threw his body over Lopez to stop the beating, saying these words, kill him and you have to kill me too. Waving a Bible as he did. And surprisingly, the group dispersed and then the pastor was able to pick up Lopez and drive him hospital. It's, that's what it looks like. Just as Jesus gets all of himself dirty with the sin of the world in order to save sinners, gets his hands messy, gets bloodied up for the sake of others, Jesus wants us to be people that are unafraid to get into the mess of other people's lives. For the sake of their lives. Not to save ourselves. No, we've already been saved by the Good Samaritan. But because we are saved by the Good Samaritan, he says, I want, I want you to be, as, to use the term Martin Luther used, little Christs to the world. Getting down in their midst. Getting down in their mess. To 
help bring healing and restoration and rescue. As I've done for you, go out and do it to the least of them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to serve. God, you know that our flesh rebels against that, and I can think of a million ways that I have faltered in this, and so I'm thankful tonight for your grace that is not done, and that is working through us, even in spite of us, a lot of the time. I thank you that you've come to us even tonight as a Samaritan bent down and brought everything he had to bring healing and restoration to those who have been beaten and victimized. So too tonight at the table, you come to us again, saying, this is my body, this is my blood, given for the forgiveness of your sins, and therefore bringing healing and restoration and wholeness. Prepare our hearts now as we get ready to come to receive this gift from your table, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.